right. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. So, we are now in week four in our series on the life of Abraham. Uh, we're picking up today where we left off three weeks ago. If you remember, uh, two weeks ago, unfortunately, uh, we needed to cancel service because of the snow. And, and then last week, we had guest speaker Carrie Burr. So, it's been three weeks since we were uh, looking at the life of Abraham. But if you remember, three weeks ago we looked at Genesis 15, this mysterious, strange story of the smoking fire pot passing between the animal pieces. And we're picking up right in uh, Genesis 16. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can turn there right now. The part of the Abraham story that we're looking at today is the part about Hagar and Ishmael. And before we get into this uh, messy, disturbing, offensive story, I think it's appropriate for me to put up a slide that I put up uh, at the start of another sermon in this series, uh, which is a slide that says this, just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean God endorses it. Just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean that God endorses it. It's a very important principle for interpreting the Bible. In this story, our main characters, Abram and Sarai, are going to do some ugly things. We've already seen Abram do some ugly things, right? Well, this time around, Sarai's going to do some ugly things, too. And if their behavior bothers you, then that's okay. That's a good thing. It should bother you. The Bible is not presenting Abram and Sarai here as some great example of moral righteous living for us to follow. This is a report of what they did, not an endorsement of what they did. Very important to keep that in mind. So before we get into this, let's bow our heads and say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for the Bible, which is uh, challenging in parts, and we thank you, Lord, that it doesn't uh, sugarcoat over the realities of life and culture. We thank you that it's real and authentic, and we pray, Lord, that as we wrestle with this tough story this morning, that you would give us insight through your Holy Spirit into what it means and how it applies to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now that sounds like an odd thing for a wife to say to her husband, doesn't it? Go, sleep with somebody else. Uh, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this would not have been super unusual. Uh, in that culture, this is something that people did when they couldn't have children. They would try to have children through their servants because a woman who had made servants regarded those servants as her property and so if her husband had a child with one of them, that child, by proxy, would be hers. Now, I hope this whole idea bothers you, okay? Uh, I hope we can see it as morally reprehensible. This is a violation of the marriage covenant between Abram and Sarai. 
This is degrading to Hagar. Uh, this is a terrible thing. It's objectively terrible. I don't care what culture you're a part of, it's wrong. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, unfortunately, they did not see it as wrong because having children was considered to be the top priority, continuing the family line. And so if you couldn't have children in the normal way, this was something that you did if you were upper class enough that you had servants. So let's consider the situation that Sarai is in right now. Uh, she knows that God has given a promise to her husband, Abram, that he is going to have many descendants. And she knows that they are getting very old and they don't have any descendants. And maybe she thinks, well, I don't know if God specifically promised that the descendants were going to come through me. And so she thinks, you know, 10 years, this is a long time to wait. Abram's 85 now. You know, maybe if God's promise is going to be fulfilled, it's not going to be through me. And so I guess I should do what people in our culture do and offer Abram my maidservant in order to make the promise fulfilled. So continuing in the text, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now, if you're wondering, is the Bible presenting what's happening here in a positive, neutral, or negative light? I can assure you that even right now, we have a clue that it is presenting this in a negative light. And it's, it's not something that might be immediately apparent to us. If we're familiar with Hebrew, it might be a little bit more obvious. But the clue is that the language that's used here is extremely similar to the language that's used in Genesis 3 when the fall occurs, the event that we refer to as the fall uh, when humanity first sins. So look at this. In Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Now, this is the same book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and there's allusions all over Genesis to previous things that happened and future things that happened. And I think we can all agree this is a bad event that happened, right? This is when humanity made the wrong choice. And there's a pattern that we see here, which is that Eve makes a judgment, and that judgment ignores God, right? And then she takes the fruit, and then she gives it to her, her husband. And the same pattern and the same sort of language is used echoing this event in the passage that we're looking at now. Sarai makes a judgment. She doesn't really consult God on it. She makes a judgment. And then she takes her servant, Hagar, and she gives Hagar to her husband. So there is a, there's a hint here, even in the language itself, that this, this cultural practice, even though it's normal, is not a good thing. It may be culturally acceptable, but it's acceptable by human judgment, not by God's judgment, just as it was acceptable by Eve's judgment to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but not by God's judgment. See that? Okay, continuing in verse 4. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. 
Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me and you. So, here we have some more proof that the Bible is not endorsing this ancient Near Eastern practice, because what's the first result of it? Family dysfunction, right? Uh, Hagar has these negative feelings towards Sarai. Sarai has very negative feelings towards Hagar, and also negative feelings towards her husband. So let's talk quickly about this word despise. What does this mean, despise? It says uh, Hagar began to despise Sarai. What's suggested by this word is that Hagar stopped showing Sarai respect. Before, she was all subservient, head down, yes, my mistress. But now that she knows she's carrying the master's child, she doesn't feel so subservient anymore. She resents that she would be looked down upon, and people around her in Abram's household are now, they're, they're looking at her in a different light. They're seeing her as, as more significant and more important. And so she is acting more like Sarai's equal now. And there's something about this that causes Sarai to snap, something that makes her break. And in verse 5, I would say, I would describe what we see here as an explosion of raw and relatable emotion. I don't think Sarai's that relatable earlier in the story when she's, go, husband, sleep with someone else. That's not relatable, right? But here you see the, what's really going on in her psyche breaking out in this, in this raw and relatable emotion. She says, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Now that sounds a little unreasonable, right? Because she's the one that suggested to Abram that they do this. But this is the cry of a wounded, jealous heart. And wounded, jealous hearts don't they don't usually sound very reasonable, right? They just say what they're feeling. So Sarai is very jealous of Hagar, right? She's jealous that Hagar is able to have a child. Uh, she's, she's jealous that Hagar has moved into her place of honor. And she's also jealous that Hagar has been sexually intimate with her husband. If, if that's not obvious, uh, on the surface, it should be obvious from this language here where she says, I put my servant in your arms. That's actually a very proper way of translating the language there. The language in the Hebrew is more graphic. It's like, I, I put my servant in your lap. Or even more graphic than that, so you can, you can fill in the blank. But the reason that, that Sarai is talking in this way is because she's expressing how she really feels about this whole thing, that she just has this disgust with the idea of Abram's sexual intimacy with Hagar. She's showing how much that bothers her. And I don't know this for sure, but I have a suspicion that when Hagar made this suggestion, she was hoping that Abram would say no. Because otherwise, why does she react like this right here? I put my servant in your lap. I think she was hoping that when she suggested this, that Abram would say something like, you know, I'm not comfortable with that, dear. Let's keep trusting in God's promise. If God promised it, it's going to happen. I think she was hoping that her husband would demonstrate faith, right? 
And I, I think that this explosion of emotion is, so, is showing that when, he, when, when uh, Sarai did this, she was really just doing what she felt like custom required her to do. And she also knew, okay, well, he's been promised descendants. It hasn't happened, so okay, let's just do, do what people do. But deep down, I think she was hoping he'd say no. Now, if you've been disappointed in Abram's behavior so far, you're about to be even more disappointed. Uh, this is what Abram says in response to Sarai. Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Basically, Abram says, she's your property. If she's bothering you, just do what you want with her. Ugh, right? That's awful. Terrible advice. And Sarai follows it. Says that she uh, takes out her jealousy on Hagar. She mistreats Hagar. And the word for mistreat there is actually the same word that's used to describe the way the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they were in bondage. So that's how you know this is bad, the way that Sarai treats Hagar. You also know that she's treating her really badly because a pregnant woman runs off into the desert by herself. How bad do your conditions have to be before you do that in this time period? My goodness, right? She's desperate. But God doesn't leave Hagar alone in that desperation. Continuing in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now that seems like a pretty insensitive thing to say, right? Go back to your cruel slave master. But before you get too offended about this, we need to realize that God does care about Hagar's pain. Because listen to what's said next. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are with child and you will have a son. You shall na name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. The Lord has heard of your misery. What the angel is saying there is, Hagar, your pain is God's concern. Your pain is God's concern. God cares about her, and that's why he says, name your son Ishmael, because Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Because God wants, every time Hagar says the name Ishmael, to remember, God hears me. God heard my cry of pain when I was in the desert. God knows me. He cares about me. So when the angel says, go back to your master, it's not this insensitive, we don't care how you feel, Hagar, kind of thing to say. It's, it's not because God doesn't care about what Hagar's going through. He hears, he cares. That's why he says, name your son Ishmael. And then he promises her one of the greatest blessings that anyone in that time period could have heard, which is you're going to have numerous descendants. 
That was the sort of blessing people wanted to hear. So God is sending Hagar back to a difficult situation, but it's not because he doesn't care. It's because God knows that this is going to be the best course of action for her. And part of that could be because she's a runaway slave right now, which means if she gets caught, she's in big trouble, right? So continuing in verse 12, the angel has a few prophetic words for uh, Hagar about her child. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, before you think, boy, this, <laughs> this sounds really awful. I mean, oh, I'm so comforted. My son's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Um, I know that sounds very derogatory. It, it, it's not, actually. That phrase, wild donkey of a man, it's a play on words, which basically means he's going to be a desert nomad. It has to do with the way he's going to live. And being a desert nomad, it's not positive or negative. It's just a neutral fact. He's going to be a desert nomad. Uh, the second part of the, the prophecy does have a negative connotation. It's basically saying Ishmael's not going to get along very well with all of his neighbors. But despite the fact that there is some negative information in this, uh, in this prophecy, you can see that Hagar receives it well, right? Because listen to what she, she does next. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So what happens here is Hagar knows she's had this encounter with a deity, but she doesn't have a name for that deity. And, and so what she names him is the God who sees me, or the God who notices me. All her life, Hagar feels like she hasn't been noticed, but in this moment, she feels like she is seen by God. And, and that word seen, it doesn't just mean, oh, God observes that I am here. They would have thought that about any deity, right? But this is a God who really sees me, who notices me, who cares about my pain, who hears me. So, Hagar returns to Abram's household, and she gives birth to Abram's first son, Ishmael. Now, that's not the end of the Hagar and Ishmael story. It actually picks up again in chapter 21, and I'm going to give a quick overview of what happens in chapter 21. Uh, when Ishmael is 14, Isaac is born. So Isaac, this is the child of the promise. This is the descendant of both Abram and Sarai, born 25 years after that first promise was given to Abram. And Ishmael is 14. Three years later, when Ishmael is 17, there's a, a party going on for Isaac, because he's three years old, which is around the time that a child would be weaned, and there was a, a, the child is weaned party, I guess, in those days. And... Uh, and at this party, Ishmael does something that mocks Isaac. And the text isn't exactly clear what it is, but it's something that Sarai especially is very offended by. And after that, Sarai demands that Hagar and Ishmael leave. She is fed up. She wants them gone. She doesn't want them having any part 
of the inheritance of the family. And Abram is actually really, really distressed about that. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to kick them out, but he hears God saying, it's okay, don't be distressed, let them go. And so Hagar is released. She's released from her servanthood and sent out into the desert. Now, I know on one hand that's terrible, right? Because she's getting kicked out of her home. She has to go out into the desert. But this is a much better situation than she was in 17 years ago because now she's actually released from her servanthood. Okay, she's not technically a slave anymore. So at least that's a good thing. But things go really rough for Hagar and Ishmael out in the desert. Um, they, they're alone, eventually they run out of water, and the text describes that Ishmael is so dehydrated that you know, he's just lying there and, and Hagar thinks he's about to die and she can't even bear to look at her dying teenage son, and so she's turned around and she's sobbing. And then once again, the God who sees her hears her cries, and responds, and this is what we're told, starting in verse 17. The angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. So there's a happy ending here, right? Things work out well for Hagar and Ishmael. All right, so that's the story. What can we learn from that? From that messy, disturbing Uh, kind of offensive story. Well, there's a lot that I think we could mine from this, but this morning I just want us to notice two particular things, uh, two things that really stand out to me. So if you're taking notes, there's a space on, on your outline for these. Number one, God's ends should be achieved through God's means. God's ends should be achieved with God's means. Now, what does that mean? Well, ends are goals, and means are the way to get there, right? So if you're going on a, on a trip, the destination is the end, and the means are the route you choose to get there, the mode of transportation, that sort of thing. Um, in this case, God's ends were what? God's ends were to give Abram descendants, to make Abram into a great nation, to give Abram's descendants the land of Canaan, and to bless the whole world through him. That's the ultimate aim, to bless the whole world. Now, what were God's means of doing that? Well, God's means of doing that were a miracle. He was going to make an elderly, barren woman pregnant. He was going to do a miracle, and he was going to do that 25 years after making the promise to Abram. But Abram and Sarai tried to achieve God's ends through human means, right? Uh, Through having Abram sleep with Hagar. But that wasn't the way that God wanted to fulfill his promises. God's ends need to be achieved through God's means. And when we try to achieve them, 
through human means, we make a mess of things, however well-intentioned we might be. So let's talk about why this matters for us today. Uh, you might say that God's ultimate end in the world today is a world where everything is made right. right? This is what God is doing in the world. This is what God is doing through Jesus Christ, through the church. A world where everything is made right. A world where everything is at peace. A world where everything is in submission to God's rule. That's the end. But what is God's means of doing this? Well, there's several ways we could answer that question, but the one I want to focus on is the means that God reveals through the cross, through what Jesus does on the cross. The means are sacrificial love. That's how God gets his work done in the world. And, and what is sacrificial love? What does that mean? Well, it means loving our enemies, right? It means turning from violence. It means forgiving and, and showing compassion. That's how God chooses to build the church. That's how God works to renew the world. That's how God wants us to partner with him in healing the world, is by exercising sacrificial love. But throughout the history of the church, many of us have tried to achieve God's ends through human means, through Hagar's. You know, there have been times where the church has tried to use violence in order to get people to submit to faith. There have, been, there have been times where we have tried to kill our enemies rather than love them. There's been times where the church has tried to bring people to a knowledge of God, tried to bring people to repentance by humiliating and shaming them rather than serving them. There's been times where we've tried to achieve God's ends by keeping ourselves isolated and comfortable and sheltered rather than taking risks to try and show the love of God to people outside of our walls. And the story of Hagar and Ishmael should remind us to stick with God's means. God's means can be hard. Sacrificial love is hard, right? God's, God's means require faith. Most of us think, well, some sort of coercion or force or violence is going to be more likely to get the job done. It takes faith to believe that sacrificial love is actually going to be the thing that works in healing the world. Just as it took great faith to believe that, that trusting in God for a miracle when you're 85 years old and you still haven't had a child, like, that takes in great, great faith. God's means usually take great faith. So, if we want to achieve God's end of seeing this world become more like heaven, we have to use his means, sacrificial love in the name of Jesus. And then the second thing I'd like us to learn from this story is this, which is God cares not just for his chosen people, but for all people. God cares not just for his chosen people, but for all people. You know, one of the things that can be really hard for us modern people is that when we read the Bible, it can sound very tribalistic. Like, it's focused on just this one little group of people, right? And nobody else matters in the whole world. And, uh, you know, we see God setting apart one nation, and, and uh, he calls them his chosen people. And, and, uh, and that can lead us to think that God doesn't care about people from other nations at this, 
at least at this time, that God just seemed to favor this one particular genetic line, and why? Well, we don't know, just because he seemed to choose to, to value it. But this story shows us that impression that we might have is not accurate. Okay, that's a false understanding of God and, and, and the story that scripture is telling. Because in this story, God hears the cries of a woman who is not part of the lineage of Israel. Right? And God blesses and protects her and her son, even though, even though the nation that's going to come from him is going to be in conflict with Israel. You think about how crazy that is. And this is recorded in the sacred text of the tribe of Israel. What? That's revolutionary. Did you notice that verse where it's talking about Ishmael and it says, God was with the boy as he grew up. God was with the boy, with Ishmael. God was with the boy from whom a nation would come that would be in conflict with his chosen people. God was with that boy. That's, that's pretty wild that that would be recorded in the sacred holy text of the people of Israel. Now, the story of the Bible does include this idea that God has a chosen people. And God does set apart a particular genetic line and calls that line his chosen people. And that line goes Abraham, Isaac. It doesn't go Abraham, Ishmael. Okay? It does teach that. But we have to realize chosen to be part of the lineage of Israel, that doesn't mean that those are the only people that God cares about. That those are the only people that God hears and sees and is concerned with. Hagar wasn't chosen to be part of this special lineage of Israel, but God still cared about her. God still heard her, right? So when you hear this idea, Israel is chosen, you should ask, chosen for what? Chosen for what? The answer is not chosen to be loved by God and all those other nations. Well, God, you know, they're just, I don't know, the reprobate, whatever. We don't care about them. No, that, that's not the way God works, okay? Israel has been chosen for a purpose, and it is to help the world know who God is. And that's what we in the church have been chosen for today. We are chosen in the sense that God has chosen us to help all the world know that there is a God, a God who loves them. God has, has made us his ambassadors. We are chosen to share the wisdom of God, the love of God. We're not chosen out of the mass of humanity to be the only people that God actually cares about. That's not what it means. To be chosen is to be chosen to serve chosen to be an ambassador for God, chosen to show the world that God loves them. We have been chosen to help people realize that there is a God who sees them, a God who hears their cries, a God who cares about them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this is such a high calling that you give us in the church to be your representatives in this way and to reflect uh, the kind of love to people that, uh, that you have for them, the kind of love that suffers and dies on a cross uh, for the sins of the world. 
Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us insight into how we can reflect that kind of love to a broken and hurting world. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who sees and who hears us, a God who cares. Lord, I pray that 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 truth would seep deep into our souls, Lord, that we would know it to be so, that we would experience that, and that we would share that same love with others. In Jesus' name, amen.